Today, um, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of the life you learned when you, lear- when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name's Casey, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you um, afterwards. Um, it's good to be here uh, with you this morning. Um, the Sunday after Easter, uh, one of the things I love about Easter, uh, aside from the resurrection, obviously, uh, is the pastels and the pink ties. Uh, you know where a guy's going when you see him at the gas station in the morning, if he's wearing a hot pink tie and a white suit and white shoes. Uh, Easter clothes just hit a little differently, don't they? You guys don't look as good as you did last week. And that's no offense. Um, I don't either. But that's the, and that's the way it should be, um, because there are certain occasions that call for certain attire, right? Think of a bride on her wedding day. She walks a certain way. And she looks a certain way. She dresses a certain way. The same is true of a soldier who's marching in formation. He walks a certain way. He looks a certain way. A drum major who's leading the band out onto the field on game day. I can remember a particular instance a few years back now uh, where I wore something that was not fit for the occasion uh, that I was at. I was one of the musicians in a wedding for a friend, and I decided to wear an old pair of pants that were, as my wife would say, ill-fitting, okay? And everything was A-OK until I started up the steps during the ceremony for the music and my pants split right down the middle, all the way, right in front of everyone. And it wasn't, you know, my best moment. What made it worse, nobody else heard this, I'll tell you guys, nobody in the ceremony heard this. The photographer's up there taking pictures on cue, pants split, he sees it, I'm embarrassed. He looks over at me and he whispers, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Maybe you've had a wardrobe malfunction like that before. Well, in our text this morning, Paul tells us about the kind of clothes that are fitting for followers of Jesus. And he uses this metaphor of putting off the old garment and putting on the new one. 
to talk about what happens when you become a Christian, much like a fireman or a policeman or an astronaut. He puts on his uniform, and the respect of the uniform brings with it certain expectations, certain responsibilities that are corresponding to his identity. We as believers were dressed in the robes and the garments of Christ. Paul, in the book of Romans, says we are to put on Christ. We receive a new spiritual identity, and Paul says, now you got to live according to that identity. Our behavior flows from our identity. And that's crucial in a passage like this because there are a lot of do's and don'ts at this point in Ephesians. A lot of commands. And God's already told us who we are, right? We've been through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He he said, you're saved, you're chosen by the Father, chapter 1. You're redeemed by the Son, chapter 2. You're sealed by the Spirit and brought together, chapter 3. You've been raised with Christ. You're seated in the heavenly places. He says, you're God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're united with him. There's this division that existed before that's abolished. And the Spirit of God has chosen to dwell in you and to bring you together as a church, as a body. And on the basis of all of that, the first verse in chapter 4, Paul says, Now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the question for us this morning is, how do we live the life, uh, how do we live a life that looks different because of the life that we've been given? How do you and I live lives that look different because of the life that God has given us in Christ? And we're going to break it down like this. A new identity, new behaviors, and continuous renewal. A new identity, new behaviors, and continuous renewal. A new identity. Look with me at verse 17. You must no longer live or walk, depending on your translation, as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's saying your primary identity is not what it used to be. You have a new identity. Even though you are Gentiles by birth, the church in Ephesus, most of them were Gentiles by birth, don't live like them. You're a Gentile ethnically, but not ethically, because there's something even more fundamental about your identity now that you are in Christ, more fundamental than your ethnicity. And he's reminding them, you've been made new. The old has gone, the new has come. Before Jesus, your thinking was futile there in verse 17. It led you to believe things that never turned out to be true. Things like, If I have more of this, then I'll be happy. If I had a relationship that looked like this, then I would be fulfilled. If I could just get to this point in my career, then I'd be satisfied. The futility of thinking, Paul mentions here in verse 17, is what it means is that this, this truth is constantly being disproved by your experience, but that doesn't stop you from believing it. We simply can't find a way out of it. It's never ending in this thinking. It's futile. And then he goes on in verse 18. He says, you were darkened in your understanding and separated from the life of God. This word separated or alienated, depending on your translation, is critical because it reminds us why you were created in the first place, why you exist as a human being created in the image of God. The life of God is what you were meant for. 
and your sin separated you from the life of God. You were meant to live close to him, and in his presence, you were meant to find this soul-fulfilling satisfaction, love, and security that you crave. And when we rejected God, we lost that fulfilling relationship. We were separated from him. We were alienated for the reason, um, uh, for the cause we were designed for. And that alienation, that separation creates in us this craving. He mentions it here. He talks about them being greedy. We're out in the dark and we're trying everything we can to get our hands on that thing that's going to satisfy so that we can feel loved and secured, and we can have life again. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they rejected God. It says that they realized they were naked. Clothing issues, wardrobe malfunctions, all the way back at the beginning. They realized they were naked, and they felt shame and insecurity, so they hid. And they tried to clothe themselves, albeit inadequately, and we're just like them. Our first parents were insecure and spiritually naked apart from God, and we try to clothe ourselves, Paul says here, with anything we can. So this alienation from God creates an insecurity and loneliness and fear and shame. And he says communion with God, life with God brings peace and friendship and love. And he's saying prior to Christ, you were fundamentally alienated from God, self-centered in the way you saw the world. That's who you were. But God, being rich in mercy, right, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, right? And the Spirit of God says today, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you don't live like that anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. You're created for good works. Now live differently. And you and I and every single person that has ever lived before needs that new identity. And that's what God offers us in Christ Jesus. And from that new identity flows new behaviors, new life. So there's this new identity we have in Christ. That leads to new behaviors. Look at verse 24 again. There are these words it says. It says, put off the old self. And it says, put on the new self. The verb tense there for put off and put on means it's a one-time action, completed. Literally, Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, something definitive has happened. Something has changed. Put off the old self. Now put on the new self. Earlier in our marriage, Jess and I, I don't know, 2010, maybe, I don't know, uh, we got into a show called What Not to Wear. Anybody ever seen What Not to Wear? Um, I I came to think, I I suspect, that my wife had ulterior motives in getting me to watch that show with her. Uh, But essentially what would happen in the show is that a spouse or a friend or a parent would call in uh, to the show because they had someone in their life who dressed poorly, right? That's an understatement. And so they'd send in videos of this person, of how they would dress on a regular basis, and it was always hideous. I mean, it was just worse than 
you can imagine sometimes. And so the premise of the show was teaching these people what not to wear by transforming their wardrobe, making them over again so that they could look the part, so that they could feel good, so that they could uh, look good. And I enjoyed watching the show. I thought it was hilarious, you know, to see how some people dress. It's, it's a lot easier to laugh at how other people dress sometimes than look in the mirror yourself. But the transformation in the show was always the best part. There's always that part in the show about two-thirds of the way through. There's this transformation that happens. And to see how someone who could not only look differently on the outside, like an entirely new person, but to see their inner confidence and their entire presence changed the smile on their face, they stood up straighter, they weren't slouching, just because of what they were wearing. They just put on new clothes. That's really all they did. And these verses are are Paul's episode of what not to wear. We see this transformation in verse 25. What sorts of new behaviors are we, those of us with a new identity, to put on? In order for us to live out our new identity, what behaviors must we Uh, live out. And before we look at those behaviors, I think I just want to note three things for you real quick, because we're going to have some commands. We're going to go through them really quick. But first, I want you to know that these, these exhortations or these commands, they're all individual. So they apply to each and every one of you individually, but they all have a relational component to them. Our sin affects others negatively, just as our righteousness blesses others positively. Okay, there's this both and. Second thing, notice that Paul always starts with a negative first and then a positive. And I think that's really important because holiness isn't just about saying no to sin. I think sometimes we think of holiness and people who are holier than now as being the one who's just saying no to something. Paul says it's about saying yes to God. We must not throw dirty clothes in the laundry and leave it at that. You've got to put a new suit on. Lastly, he gives a theological reason for why you should throw off old sinful behavior and put on a new Christian one. What I mean by that is he doesn't just say, put away falsehood and leave it at that. He relates it to the doctrine of the church. Why should you put away falsehood? Because we are members of one body. He doesn't just say, don't lose your temper. He ties it to the theological reality that there's a devil out there. And you don't want to give him an opportunity to spoil your life. So the point he's making is that ethics and theology are tied together. Not only should Christians live differently than unbelievers, they should also live differently for different reasons. Okay? Christians live differently, and they live differently for different reasons. And then he lists, starting in verse 25, a bunch of commands. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Uh, An entire sermon series can be done on just these commands, but we're going to do an overview here. And as I go through them, I want you to just sit there, sit in it, pray maybe right now to say, God, as we step into this, would you show me, is there something I need to put off in my life? Is there something I should be putting on? Is Is this wardrobe here that you're talking about actually what people see when they see my life as a believer? Okay, here we go. First one, verse 25, replace lying with truth-telling. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? Well, because God hates liars and Satan is a liar. God hates liars. It's all over the Bible. And Satan is 
the father of lies. And so when you tell the truth, you're imitating God. And when you lie, you're imitating Satan. And he gives another reason. He says, because we are all members of one body. When you lie, when you, when you uh, go about in falsehood, you actually hurt other people. You're one body. If your eye says to your hand that the, the stove isn't hot and the hand puts itself on the stove and burns, it affects the whole body. Falsehood destroys unity. And truth strengthens unity. So put off falsehood. Put on truth-telling. Next one. Replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Verse 26 and 27, it says, In your anger do not sin, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold, okay? Anger is inevitable, okay? It's normal. It's a human response. God gets angry. He hates sin. Jesus got angry. He hates injustice. The fact that you and I become angry is not evidence that there's something wrong with us. But if we're not careful with our anger, it can lead us down the wrong path. And Paul gives three things here really quick, three reminders on how to keep your anger holy. Anybody like getting angry every once in a while? Come on, you laugh, it's true. Replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger isn't just don't cuss when you get mad. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is do not sin. You don't have a license just to throw a fit, to cuss, you know, say what you want to say, dishonor God in public. Anger's never an excuse for sin. That's number one. Number two, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. Resolve it quickly. Today's anger is manageable. Yesterday's anger is toxic. Okay? Yesterday's anger is toxic. It's like water that's leaking behind the wall in your house. You can fix it today. The problem solved. If you let it run, it's going to destroy the whole thing. You can't let it sit because it rots. And thirdly, do not give an opportunity to the devil. Anger builds in intensity if you don't deal with it. It's like a pressure cooker. Something you could process today is going to turn up in a massive fight months down the road if you don't deal with it. And that's how anger gives Satan a foothold. It intensifies over and over on itself. God didn't design us to store anger He designed us to ventilate it rather than store it, to offer it up to him. And that's why the Bible's so insistent on us being forgivers, right? Okay, so that's anger. Replace stealing with working and giving. Anyone, verse 28, who has been stealing must no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. John Wesley put it really well. He said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give away as much as you can. He summed up this verse right here. Work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. Okay? We work so that not for ourselves, we can give to others. Because God has been so generous with us because of Christ's work on the cross, God the Father is able to lavish on you and me by grace, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We get that, not because of what we have done, but what Christ 
has done. And so we work now not just for ourselves, not to earn God's approval, but as a response to his work and his generosity towards us. Stop stealing. Work and give. Next, replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. Verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk. Unwholesome here literally means rotten, putrid, and filthy. It refers to uh, other places in the New Testament, rotten fruit and rotten fish. It's the gossip and the slander and the diss tracks that come out of our mouth. Instead, Paul says, we're to speak in a way that gives grace to those who hear it. That's huge. Jesus has so much to say to his followers about how they should use their words. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, you will give an account on the final day for every careless word you have spoken. That's Jesus. You're going to give an account for the words that you've spoken. St. Augustine was so moved by that verse that he actually made and hung a sign on his dining room wall that said, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. So, so what Paul's saying here is this isn't simply about resisting harsh words. It's, it's about looking for ways and seeking out ways to verbally encourage, replacing the old, putting on the new. Encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need it. Everyone needs it. Edify, build one another up with your words, Paul says. He goes on, verse 31 and 32, replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. How has God in Christ forgiven you? Partially? Fully completely, totally. So Paul says, because God in Christ has forgiven you totally, you don't hold a grudge. Don't do as the country artist said, bury the hatchet, but leave the handle sticking out, right? You can't bury the hatchet and leave the handle sticking out so that you can pull it back out when you want it. He's saying, no, you forgive fully. You remake the hatchet into a tool that can plant seeds of renewal, okay? That's what the gospel does. It takes a guy who's so full of anger and malice, unable to forgive, and turns him into someone who uses the very thing he couldn't forgive to bring about renewal in his life and in the world. And so there it is. That's the new wardrobe. Paul's given us an outline of the new identity, and he's also shown us new behaviors that flow from that identity. Lastly, he's going to bring it home. And he's going to show us the source of it all. And that's continuous renewal. In verse 22, Paul says, put off your old self. In verse 24, he says, put on your new self. What does he say in verse 23? Look with me. Verse 23. It's the link. It's the source. It's the power for connecting the new identity with the new behavior. Because without it, we'll just be wearing ourselves out with morality and behavior modification techniques and self-help books and stuff that 
It's futile. Verse 23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The verb tense there, this, this is a present progressive act. That may not mean anything to you. What it means is that it's constantly happening. It never stops. It's a call to be continually renewed. You're constantly being changed in your mind, in your inner man. Not just behavioral changes here and there on the outside, constantly renewed on the inside. It's saying that there's a way to be constantly renewed, to be transformed continually from within. And there's this ongoing renewal that changes the way you approach the world and you interact with the world and you interact with your brothers and sisters in the church. And how does this continuous renewal happen? Look at verse 20 and 21. The key is in verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, you were taught in him. In him. Paul's literally saying to us here, learn Christ. Hear his voice. He's the person you are to learn. He's the topic of the study. He's the master you should learn from. He's the one you're supposed to be utterly fascinated with, whom you can't wait to just, you just love to delve deeper into Christ, whom you desire to understand more fully. He's the one who has to capture your heart, Paul says. Hear his voice. Listen to his voice. And when he's captured your heart, that's what's actually going to enable you to put off the old and to put on the new and to live as a new creation. When your heart is captured by Jesus, that's going to be the source and the power and the motivation for continuous renewal. Growing up, I was into Greek mythology. Okay? And there was a famous story that just struck me and it's been with me ever since. And there, it's a story of Odysseus. Anybody heard that name before? Okay, there's one. <laughs> uh, and he was, he was taking his men, his, his crew on a voyage. And there was dangerous island ahead. And on that island were these three things called sirens, who were half bird and half human. And these sirens sang songs that the sailors couldn't resist. Okay, and Odysseus wasn't the first guy. There were many ships that tried to sail past this island, but none of them made it because none of the sailors could resist the alluring, beguiling, bewitching song of the siren. And they would woo them closer and closer to the shore, and their ships would be dashed on the rocks, and they would die. They would drown because they couldn't resist the gravitational melody of the siren. And the sirens are, are like sin. You know, They're luring these ships in to their death and destruction. They're hypnotizing them. But Odysseus had an idea. Odysseus said, I'm going to get past it. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to put wax in my crew's ear. Uh, every, every crew member to get wax in his ear so he, he doesn't hear the siren song. But he was clever. He said, I still want to hear it, actually, because I like the song. Like, I want to hear the siren sing. It's beautiful to me. But I know if I hear it, I'm going to steer the ship towards the rocks and we're all going to die. So what did he do? He tied himself to the mast. He had his crew tie himself to the mast. And he said, no matter how close we get to the island, no matter how hard I scream, I'm going to scream because I'm going to tell you to turn. Don't listen to me. Keep the wax in your ears. Don't 
untie me. If you do, we're all going to die. So he stayed tied to the mast. When they got close to the island, the sailors were rowing. They couldn't hear the siren song. Odysseus screaming because he wants the siren. He's being drawn towards the siren, but he makes it safely by on the other side. And when the siren song is, is passed and they can no longer see him, he gives them the motion. They untie him. They take the wax out of their ears, and they make it safely by. He didn't want to die, but he still wanted to be tempted by the siren. Still wanted to, to hear a little bit. But there was another Greek hero named Jason. Jason and the Argonauts. Jason had a different idea. He had a different mentality of how to get past the siren's song. Jason had a crewmate named Orpheus. And Orpheus was a musician. He was a lute player, kind of like played guitar, right? And he played so beautifully. It was said that whenever he played, he captivated his hearers so that they could hear nothing else. And Jason said, if Orpheus can play the lute on my ship, then we can get past the sirens. And so as Jason's ship came near the island of the sirens, the crew assembles on the deck. Everybody's on the deck in the shadow of the mast. And and as they're coming closer, they hear the enchanting melodies of the sirens. But as soon as they hear it, Jason starts playing, or Orpheus starts playing his lute. And the overwhelming beauty of his playing, the music he was playing, drowned out any, any notion that the sirens were singing a song. It's like they weren't even there. The beautiful music of Orpheus kept Jason and his sailors safe on the other side, and he played until they were out of sight, and they made it through. Jesus is that beautiful music. When you study the person of Jesus and the reality of Jesus and you see what he has done, when you understand who he is, you can't help but be captivated by him. Jesus is that beautiful music. You want to sit at his feet. You want to learn from him. You want to listen to his voice. You want to hear his voice. And when you grasp the beauty of what he has done and who he is, it brings ongoing renewal. You will experience renewal in your life as you learn Christ, as you listen to his voice, and you learn the truth that is in Jesus. And that renewal then becomes the driving force for putting off the old and putting on the new. Sure, morality is valuable, okay? There is a right and there is a wrong. The Bible's very clear on it. But what separates Christianity from any other religion is that morality and the moral police can set external standards for us, uh, but those are often unattainable and they're almost always unforgiving. There's no power for renewal in morality. It's just trying, it's just tying yourself to the mast and, and smashing wax in your ears. Christianity speaks of an internal, continuously renewing new life that you can have, you can experience, and it happens from within. We sang the song right before I came up here. They'll know we are Christians by our love, not by our morality. That's not what we want to sing. That's not what we want to communicate about Jesus. Jesus and Christianity is about renewal that comes through the person and work of the Son of God. Look to him. 
See the beauty of what he's done. Study him, learn him, listen to him, and look full in his wonderful face, as the old hymn says, and be renewed as you take off your old self and put on the new self. Let's pray.